I like it. I like that walk up. It's not Coolio, but it's okay. It's okay. Platt Park Church, it is a gift to gather with you as always. My name is Allie, and on behalf of our preaching team here, I am so excited to welcome you to my favorite season of the church year, Lent. Now, I told my husband that this weekend, or this week on Ash Wednesday, and he was like, your favorite season is Lent? I was like, yeah. He was like, you might want to get that checked out. Like, that is not a normal thing. Like, what kind of psychopath's favorite season is Lent? This one. This one. It's my favorite season. And I know I might not be able to convince you to love it as much as I do today, but I hope that when you leave, you at least have a little bit of a deeper sense of why this season is so beautiful and so necessary for us every year as we go through it together. Lent is the 40-day period of preparation before we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter, and it is easily one of the most misunderstood times in the church year. It's typically either ignored or it's overemphasized as this time of very harsh discipline where we need to get ourselves right with God before Easter. Raise your hand if you came from a a background of like, we didn't talk about Lent. That was a Catholic thing. Yeah, right, a few of us. Raise your hand if you came from maybe more of a Catholic background where Lent was like this, this real big thing that we did. Yeah, yeah. When, and both extremes miss what Lent is actually about. When we minimize or ignore Lent, we miss the growth and the deeper experience of God that we're invited into in Lent. On the other hand, when we overemphasize this as a season of sacrifice, we can also miss the growth and the deeper experience of God that this season offers. Now, I've told this my cautionary Lenten tale here before, so I'm going to keep it quick if you've heard it. I apologize, but it's just so good about how to miss Lent. Um, I grew up Catholic, and so what I knew of Lent, I don't know if this is how anybody else knew of Lent, Lent for me was a stone-cold bummer. Like, you hated this season. Every time it would start to get close, you'd be like, oh, no, here it comes again. And it was a time that God wanted you, in my growing up, it was a time that God wanted you to suffer. And so what God wanted you to do was to give up something that would be really, really hard for you. And the harder it was, the more God points you got. And you cash those in on Easter. Like, that's how it worked, right? At least how in my little brain, that's how it worked. And there are just red flags at every part of this story. So I hope you just like collect them as I go on here. Because every part of this is just bad theology. Anyway, I decided to give up sweets because I love sweets. And the problem was that my family had decided to go on a cruise halfway through Lent. Now, if you've been on a cruise, you know sweets are basically like the core of the culinary experience, right? Like there's other food, but it's just to get you from dessert to dessert. Like, why we go on cruises is because we want to eat dessert. And I truly did think God wanted me to suffer in Lent, but I just could not believe that God would want me to walk by a all-you-can-eat death-by-chocolate buffet seven straight days on a boat. Like, I just could not believe what kind of God lets that happen. I was like, I can't, I cannot get behind this. And I've shared before how I often ask my spiritual directees, like, do you want to be alone in a car with that God as a means of kind of gauging how they're experiencing God? I did not want to be in a car with this God. I did not want to be on a boat for seven days with this God. I was not about to miss out on desserts during this Lenten cruise. So I did what any evil genius does, and I created my own loophole. I decided that I would give up sweets for like this random week in January. And that would cover me for the week that I was on the cruise. It's not done. I'm not done. 
Then I had the audacity to tell people, I think it was actually the harder path because I like got used to giving up sweets and then I had this like whole week where all I did was eat sweets and then I had two more weeks before Easter. And so, you know, I think I was actually more holy for it. (laughs) I would like to say I've grown a lot since then. Um, Really, really have worked on some things. Uh, Wasn't my finest moment there. And I tell you that so that you can learn from my Lenten mistakes. Because what happened was that I missed the heart of what Lent was about that year. I missed it. And I missed it for a lot of years. And the moral of this story is not to knock fasting. Fasting is a deeply formative spiritual practice that is designed to make space for more of God by giving something up. This story is about when fasting, or any spiritual practice, becomes about control rather than surrender. It's about when a spiritual practice is an attempt to manipulate God rather than a true act of repentance that turns us back to God. For me, that year, giving up sweets was not about clearing space for more of God in my life. It was about proving and earning and control, and it was it coming out of a very twisted theology that suffering leads to God's love. What God invites us into in Lent is not suffering. It's repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which if you know Greek, it's got like, Greek has like a total energy to it. I come from a Greek background and my, my yaya, which is Greek um, for grandma, would always be like, English just misses it here. You'd be like, what's the word for this? She's like, I'm not even going to tell you because English just misses it. And English misses it here because repentance for us feels like, again, like kind of like a bummer. Metanoia is like this really energetic word that is very embodied, like this turning from this thing towards something else. And it's this integrated movement away from that which brings death towards that which brings life. And that's what Lent is about. It's about turning away from these things that bring us death back toward the God who brings us life. It invites us anew into the central story of our faith, which is life, death, and resurrection. And not by simply remembering something Jesus did a long time ago, but Lent invites us to experience this in our own lives. Lent invites us to return to the heart of who God is and who we are so that when Easter comes in five weeks, we can more fully live as people who are experiencing new life, who are living into the resurrection life that God offers us. This is about so much more than just giving something up. Lent is a time to let God meet us and form us so that the new life that God births in us can outflow into the world. We begin Lent on Ash Wednesday, which is named for the practice of rubbing ashes on our foreheads. And when we say that, most churches will say, remember that you are dust and unto dust you shall return. It's a poetic callback to Genesis 2 when God creates humanity out of the dust of the ground. God forms Adam out of this dust. And what it does is immediately lets us know Lent is about seeing things as they are. That this is a season where we're going to take a fiercely honest look at our lives. In Advent, we're asked to wait with expectation, to hold the tension of hope as we anticipate God's coming towards us. In Lent, we're called to take a hard look at things as they actually are. 
The reminder that we are dust and to dust we shall return confronts us with something that we as humans have been trying to outrun from the very beginning. The reality that we are limited, finite creatures who are dependent upon a creator. We were made to live in this trusting dependence on a good God. And instead of living into that, we have fought that at every single turn. It's why Adam and Eve eat the fruit in the garden. It's why people tried to make a tower at Babel. It's why the Israelites again and again put their trust in rulers and military might and kings instead of God. And we see this everywhere in the world today. You see this in advertising. You see this in entertainment. We see this in the addictive technology that we're surrounded with. We see this in a multi-billion dollar anti-aging industry. I read this week that someone is trying to like age like Benjamin Button himself, like this billionaire is trying to age backwards because he thinks like he can live forever. We see this in a medical model that's focused exclusively on extending our quantity of life without any regard to its quality. And what Lent calls us to see is the world for what it is so that we can turn away from this idea that we are independent, that we are infinite, that we don't need God. The essence of sin is that we don't need God. That's the separation that sin creates. I don't need you. And Lent says, let's turn away from that because it brings death, and let's turn back toward the God who brings life. One of my favorite contemporary thinkers on Lent is this little Benedictine nun, and she's a fantastic theologian, Sister Joan Chittister. She wrote this in 2021. We have thought of Lent as everything except what it is really meant to be. Space, time, change, and reflection. It's the moment to ask myself, who am I? Who am I becoming? It is time given to us to straighten things up a bit. Our relationships, our outpourings of charity, our concentration on the things that really matter in life, It underscores the presence of the spirit of Jesus, whose crucifixion calls us to always become more of the best of ourselves, to live forever to the depths of our souls. You can see why I love her. It is Lent that shows us what's under the superficialities of life and prods us to face them. Lent has never set out to immerse us in pain in a kind of spiritual masochism. I love that too. On the contrary, Lent is the one proof we have that in the end of everything we face, all the struggles required of us, it is really meant to become new life in us. But somewhere along the way, the spiritual life and the practices of Lent in particular became more about the negation of life than the holy making embrace of all its dimensions. If you take nothing from me today, take that quote. No, Lent is not about giving up our adult candy or immersing ourselves in pain. Lent is about being honest with ourselves, changing what needs to change in our lives, making our world a better place, and growing into the light. Somewhere along the way, the spiritual life and the practices of Lent in particular became more about the negation of life than the holy making embrace of all of its dimensions. We return to the truth of who God is and who we are, not because we're going to die, but because God has called us to live. Lent is a season about life. The story of God is a story about life. 
We believe in a Messiah who has come that we may have life and have it to the full, not that we can go to heaven when we die. That's a part of it. But I have come so that they may have life. This is about living. And to live into the fullness of life, we need honest looks at the world that we live in. We need an honest reflection on who we are and who we are becoming. We need Lent because this is exactly what Lent calls us to do. It's one of the reasons I love Lent so much. As soon as you step into it, Lent says, drop the mask. You can stop the charade. We don't need that here. We don't need your illusions. We need you to see this as it is. And there is no better place to see things for as they truly are than the wilderness. Lent is a wilderness season all around. It's modeled after the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness preparing to begin his public ministry, which itself echoes and redeems, we're going to talk about that in a minute, the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness following their exodus from Egypt. As Charlie mentioned, over the next five weeks, we're going to be companioning the Israelites on their journey with God in the wilderness, exploring key moments as they return to the truth of who God is and the truth of who God's created them to be in preparation to live into the promised land. Now, when we talk about the Israelites' time in the wilderness, it's often seen as a punishment. Like, those guys just could not get their act together. So they needed to be in, like, a timeout for a few decades and let the, like, original, let the OGs die, and then God would take the other ones back in before we did the thing. And the truth is that the time in the wilderness is the thing. That's the thing. Their years in the wilderness are this deep and necessary formation to become the kind of people who can live into the promised land. The promised land is that they just get to live with God. It's the exact thing they're doing in the, they're learning how to do in the wilderness. After 430 years of slavery in Egypt, the Israelites needed to relearn who God was and who they were. The people who God led out of Egypt were generations, multiple generations removed from the people who first went in there. All these people knew was Egypt. All these people knew was slavery. That had been their identity for hundreds of years. And the freedom of the Exodus wasn't simply God getting the people out of Egypt. That's part one. God then needs to get Egypt out of the people. That's what the wilderness is about. In scripture, Egypt's, Egypt functions on multiple levels, like a lot of things. It's both a historical reality as well as this ongoing metaphor for a worldly way of doing things that is in opposition to the godly way of doing things. If you've ever read any of renowned Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, I love me some Walter Brueggemann, and anytime I can like put him into a sermon, I do. Um, he describes Egypt as the primary image for God's critique of the predatory economy. This is like Brueggemann's life work. He talks about it everywhere. It doesn't fit sometimes, and he still talks about it because he's super passionate about it. But this predatory economy is a way of living in which everything is a means to my end. Other people the environment, even God. Everything is a means to my end. And the predatory economy is built upon the belief that certain people and certain places matter more than others. The Israelites only knew this predatory economy. Even as the prey of the predatory economy, they still have bought into the predatory economy. 
And so much of the rest of the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy are what we think of as like tedious and kind of like boring instructions. Like we don't really need those things, right? No, they're actually these really incredibly thoughtful details about how to structure a community so that it does not become a predatory economy. All that talk about jubilee and like things about collateral and how to borrow coats and like what we do with food. And it's, it's like, seems like it's really basic, land laws, debt forgiveness. But it's about God having this bigger conversation with God's people of like, we're not about that. We are not going to look like Egypt. Bible teacher Marty Solomon of the Bema podcast, another shameless plug for Bema podcast. If you haven't listened to it, what are you doing? Listen to it. It's so good. I feel like every sermon's like brought to you by Bema. Uh, it's so good. But he talks about how the primary theme in scripture, this primary theme in scripture is a story of the kingdom of empire. So instead of predatory economy, he talks about it as kingdom of empire versus God's kingdom of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that is, again, super expansive and beautiful. It's like this wholeness, this idea of things as they're meant to be and all that is right and true and good. And the kingdom of empire is power by domination, while God's kingdom of shalom is power by surrender. It's the upside down kingdom we talk about a lot in the New Testament. Empire is characterized by fear, by coercion, by scarcity. I got to get mine because there's not enough. Shalom is characterized by trust, by self-sacrifice, by abundance. God is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I have everything I need. We see this play out so clearly in Jesus' own time in the wilderness. The devil tempts him with three things that that each one is at the heart of empire. Each lie is the heart of empire. And the tests that the devil gives are to see if Jesus will trust in the kingdom of empire by choosing his own power, his own fame, his own safety, his own provision, or if he will instead surrender to God and trust God. And sometimes we talk about Jesus' time in the wilderness as like a will he or won't we? Won't he? Like we don't really know. Is he going to be good enough to pass this test? And really the idea of so much of this idea of testing for the Israelites and for Jesus is this very intimate, I want to know what's in your heart. And Jesus is, much, this episode for Jesus is much more, is as much as a redemption of the choices that everyone else up until this point in God's story has made. He's redeeming what the Israelites chose. He's redeeming what other people chose. Because despite this transformative time in the wilderness that we're going to talk about, the Israelites go back again and again and again to trusting Egypt. Solomon marries into Egypt. He marries one of Pharaoh's daughters. Pharaoh becomes his father-in-law. And he goes on to build this great temple for the Lord, which scholars think he used slave labor for. It's nice. King Hezekiah, who's one of like the few good kings, kind of, um, takes military aid from Egypt to fight off Assyria, which ends up causing the eventual destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah a few hundred years later. We hear a lot about Egypt in the prophets. Do not trust, woe to you who trust in Egypt, who relies on military might instead of the word of the Lord. And we see this again over and over in the New Testament with the Jews who are colluding with Rome. This is a huge underlying tension and theme in Jesus' day of God's people choosing to trust in worldly power rather than God's power. And so throughout this series, we're going to see how God uses the wilderness to get Egypt out of the Israelites, to move them from trusting in power and authority in a worldly way 
to trusting, learning to surrender and rest and trust to God's power, God's authority, and God's provision. Now, quick note on wilderness. We talked about this a little bit in the Shepherd series. Um, wilderness in this context means what? Anyone? Guys, we did six weeks on this. <laughs> desert. It means harsh desert. Harsh desert. It's often used, we're going to use the word desert interchangeably with wilderness because in this context, it means really harsh desert. And the desert is the place of just enough. It's the place where survival is not guaranteed. It's moment by moment. Now, this is a view of the Israelites' path out of Egypt from space, so you can kind of see where they start is that big old green place. That's the Nile River Delta, and to this day, it has some of the most fertile topsoil in the whole world. They were used to provision coming from the land. They were used to the system of even if they had to be the ones who worked it, they started off as farmers, that there was a way that they would get food from their own production. They're used to a system of empire where their production earns them something. And as we follow their path down, this is like a rough sketch. Scholars are actually, I found this out as I was researching for the sermon, there's a lot of disagreement about how they came and where they went. And um, so this is just an idea of how they went, where they went down and then around. But what I want you to notice is when they get to Sinai, this peninsula, a lot of brown. A lot of brown over there. If you remember some of the slides, when Charlie talked about green pastures, we think of like these beautiful lush meadows. We're talking like two little strands of grass. Like it is not, it is harsh desert out here, okay? And one of the first things we hear the Israelites say when they get to the wilderness is, did you lead us out here to die, man? Like what are you doing? Like we might have been slaves in Egypt, but at least we had food. How are we supposed to eat out here? What God does is uses the wilderness for them and for us to strip the, re, the illusion that we depend on ourselves, that we don't depend on God. God strips the Israelites of everything they were trusting in that wasn't God. Because in the desert, they're completely dependent on God to care for them. They are completely dependent on God to provide for them. And they are completely dependent on God to protect for them. This wasn't something that they could just learn about in their heads. This was something they had to experience with God. They needed to live it. They needed to get it into their bones. Because this time in the wilderness was not a punishment. It was a mercy. It's a mercy. Many rabbis will describe the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea using the metaphor of a birth canal to show they're being reborn as they leave Egypt. Charlie's going to talk about this in a few weeks, but the idea of their time in the wilderness, also, a lot of rabbis will also talk about this as a honeymoon period. It's where they're learning to get to know each other. It's where they're learning how to live out of this covenant relationship with God. And in the same way, the wilderness is where we learn how to live like sheep who trust a shepherd. It's one thing for us to say together on Sundays, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And it is another thing to go into the wilderness where I have to depend on the shepherd for everything. Lent is a mercy, not a punishment. 
The wilderness of the Lenten season is designed to strip us of the illusions that prevent us from seeing things as we truly are, as they truly are. Not because God wants us to suffer, but because God wants us to live. God wants us to live as God's created us to live. And only when we see things as they truly are can we turn away from that which brings death back towards the God who brings life. And only then can we live more fully and freely into the life that God died to give us. And that is how we bring God's kingdom of shalom into our world, through our own resurrected lives. And so as we spend the next few weeks walking with the Israelites in the wilderness and walking in the wilderness of Lent together, I want you to bring a couple things into your conversation with God through prayer. I want you to open your eyes and ask God to look for signs of the kingdom of empire in your life. What does this look like for me? One of the ways it shows up for me is scarcity. I have a bunch of kid pickups right now, and it's like I hate it because I'm always like in a rush to get to like some school where it's apparently frowned upon if you're like five minutes late to pick up your kid. And so the sense of scarcity, I can tell when I'm buying into the kingdom of empire when my life is dominated by scarcity. It's like yellow light syndrome. Everything is just kind of like yellow lights all the time. Where am I buying into the kingdom of empire? And what would it look like for me to surrender more and more to trust God's kingdom of shalom? What would it look like for me to trust that I lack nothing with my good shepherd, even here, even in this wilderness season. As we close, I want to read a blessing for the wilderness, for our journey through Lent, written by priest and artist Jan Richardson. It's called Where the Breath Begins, and I encourage you to close or lower your eyes and just open your hands as I read her beautiful words over you. Dry and dry and dry in each direction. Dust dry, desert dry, bone dry. And here in your own heart, dry. The center of your chest, a bare valley, stretching out every way you turn. Did you think this was where you had come to die? It's true that you may need to do some crumbling, yes. That some things you have protected may want to be laid bare, yes. That you will be asked to let go and let go. Yes. But listen, this is what a desert is for. If you have come here desolate, if you have come here deflated, then thank your lucky stars the desert is where you have landed. Here where it is hard to hide. Here where it is unwise to rely on your own devices. Here where you will have to look and look again and look close to find what refreshment awaits to reveal itself to you. I tell you, though it may be hard to see it now, this is where your greatest blessing will find you. I tell you, this is where you will receive your life again. I tell you, this is where the breath begins. Amen. Thank you, Allie. Isn't Allie great? (laughs) 